Welcome to The Landscape, your show about America's parks and public lands. I'm Aaron Weiss with the Center for Western Priorities, coming to you outside this week at the Colorado State University Spur Campus in Denver, alongside the not-so-wild, occasionally scenic, but incredibly important South Platte River. And I'm Kate Gretzinger in Salt Lake City, Utah. Today on the show, we're talking about an exciting new effort to protect a vast region in southeastern Oregon called the Owyhee Canyonlands. It's one of the most undeveloped areas in the West, and it's under a lot of pressure right now from a number of different uses. But before we get to that, let's do the news. Congress narrowly avoided a government shutdown, which means that national parks will stay open for now. Hopefully the House can get it together and pass a funding bill so we're not back in the same place by Thanksgiving. In the meantime, we've got a grab bag of headlines from the past week for you. First up, we just launched a new report called Conservation Toolbox, which is a guide to the many different ways we can protect federal public lands. The report goes beyond the most well-known designations, like national parks and national monuments, and explores lesser-known tools like areas of critical environmental concern in national conservation areas. Some of these tools provide stronger, more durable protections, while others are quicker and easier to implement. We even attempted to develop a chart comparing the tools in the report in terms of their strength and longevity. Go check that out if you want to know how ACECs compare to national monuments or wilderness study areas, for example. We'll drop a link to the report into the show notes. Next up, we are tracking an oil spill on national public land adjacent to Grand Staircase Escalante National Monument in Utah. It's contaminated a wash that runs into the monument. Now, the spill happened all the way back on September 13th, according to the Bureau of Land Management. As of September 22nd, 163 barrels of oil and 6,400 barrels of contaminated water had spilled. That liquid ran into a nearby drainage. Rain may have helped push it deeper into the monument. The BLM says cleanup is a challenge because of the terrain in there, as you can imagine. This is yet another reminder that as much as the oil and gas industry loves to talk about how they're responsible and they always clean up their messes, there are places where it is simply too risky to drill. The oil industry, if you press them, will admit you can never guarantee no oil spills. So the question isn't if, but when spills will happen, and then what happens next? And if that oil spill will inevitably head into a canyon, into a river, anywhere you won't be able to contain the effects of a spill, maybe that is not a great place to drill for oil. Finally, I want to hop in here to let folks know that oil production is actually up under Biden as compared to Trump. Despite the reforms Interior and Congress have made to the federal leasing system to give taxpayers a better return for drilling on public land and to protect sensitive areas from drilling. The Biden administration has actually approved more permits for drilling on public lands than the Trump administration had at the same period in their administrations. And the United States has also been exporting more crude oil and petroleum products than it has been importing for the last two years. Unfortunately, we're not reaping the benefits of this boom at the pump because OPEC has been cutting production, which is keeping prices down. All of this is just to say federal oil and gas reform is not the reason gas is at least four bucks a gallon in most of the Western United States. We have Tim Davis, founder and executive director of Friends of the Owyhee, and Carly Foster, campaign manager at the Oregon Natural Desert Association, here today to talk about how we can better protect the Owyhee Canyonlands. Tim, Carly, thank you guys for being here. Yeah, thanks for the invite. Tim, what is the Owyhee Canyonlands, and where does that name come from? 
So the name Oahi and Hawaii are two different spellings of the exact same word. Um, when Captain James Cook discovered what he what was then called the Sandwich Islands, today the Hawaiian Islands, um, is inhabited by people called the Oahis. Um, so then the British and American traders started uh, referring to them people as that. Uh, many individuals from the islands started uh, jumping on ships um, as they were stopping off at the Hawaiian Islands, coming up to the Pacific Northwest for the fur trade. Um, in Donald McKenzie's Snake River Expedition in uh, 1819 and 1820, he had three Hawaiian Islanders with him, and he sent them out into what today we know the Oahe as. Never seen from again. So they named the region after them three individuals, meaning the Oahe. Um, fun little fact, too, is the islands, as I mentioned, were called the Sandwich Islands. And in McKenzie's and Ogden's fur trapping journals, they referred to the river as the Sandwich Island River. And the region, the Oahe's, I kind of wish it would have just stayed that way. But the Oahe's great. So so tell us where it is, um, what region we're talking about today and sort of just describe it for us. Yeah, so the Oahe is a 7 million acre watershed, 9 million acre region that encompasses Oregon, Idaho, and Nevada. About 50% of it's in Oregon, 25% in Idaho and Nevada. Um, there's a lot of factors that make this landscape really special. It's kind of the blending zone between the Great Basin and the Snake River Plain. It's home to over 200 different wildlife species, has over 28 rare and endemic plant species, some of the darkest night skies left in the lower 48. It's a geologic wonderland. It has lava flows that are very similar to Craters of the Moon National Monument and has a caldera eruption from about 15 million years ago that was 600 times larger than Mount St. Helens that most of us are aware of, seen photos of, videos, or were alive when it happened in 1980. The southern end of the Oahe is the birthplace of Yellowstone that erupted 14 to 16 million years ago, and tectonic plates have moved that hotspot to where it is today. Um, and there's been many other uh, smaller eruptions uh, through, through the time as well. The Oahe also has a very rich cultural and historical heritage, including Native American tribes, the Shoshone, Northern Paiute, and Bannock. Uh, early explorers and fur trappers, the, the region's history is intertwined with exploration and settlement of the American West. Folks listening at home can't see what just happened, but my brain exploded on the Oahe-Hawaii connection, which somehow I had never caught in all of my years talking about the Oahe. So thank you for that. Carly, tell us some, some of your personal connections to this region. Okay, so my connection first to Oregon is on the wetter side. Um, I grew up in the temperate rainforest of Oregon's West. Um, and Hawaii was always this like kind of exotic land that I heard my uncle, you know, talk about going there um, in southeastern Oregon hunting and and passing through. And so I just thought the Hawaii was like not even in Oregon. I just thought it was this, you know, when I was a kid, I was like the West is the Cascades and West for me. And that's all of Oregon. And I think that, you know, a lot of us Oregonians, uh, who populate the West side, which is the majority population in the state, um, probably also grew up not knowing where the Owyhee is, even though I'm fourth, fifth generation Oregonian. <laughs> and so um, I just share that background because now I'm here living, you know, in central Oregon and have this opportunity to engage in the Owyhee, 
which is Oregon's backyard. I mean, it's, it's a humongous chunk of our landscape and yet so few of us know it's even existence. And I'm sure we'll talk a little bit about that today of, of how that kind of has long protected it. Um, but my connection more recently, I had an opportunity actually to go out with Tim on a six-day rafting trip down the Wild and Scenic River of the Owyhee in the Oregon um, side. And I mean, it was, I'm not trying to exaggerate, but it was absolutely life-changing. I, it's like, you know, people wait years to experience the Grand Canyon and, and float down that. And here, here is this like, equally majestic, equally profound landscape in our corner of Oregon. And so that was just really a wonderful way for me to see the Canyonlands just at that, you know, view looking up into humbling spires and huge canyon walls. And that's, you know, why it gets its name, um, Oregon's uh, Grand Canyon. That's a nickname that um, people call it. And you're, you know, undoubtedly like parallel to these Canyonland landscapes. But I think what was also really cool about that trip was that even though we call it, you know, Oregon's Grand Canyon, it's, it's way different and way more unique because of the ecology, the geology. Um, it's, it's lush while still being high desert, you know, it's this like really cool juxtaposition and kind of, um, polarities that exist there. So, Anyway, I, I could talk about it all day, but, um, you know, Tim's done this trip multiple times. So it was really cool to be on this trip with him and get like some history in the background. And, um, and then since then, I've spent a lot of time going back out there, um, in my role here with Oregon Natural Desert Association, sorry, in my role here at Oregon Natural Desert Association since part of my, job is to protect this landscape. So I've had the opportunity to go down into different parts, um, including I've spent a lot of time in the McDermott Caldera region, which people don't really connect as part of the Hawaii Canyonlands, but that's also what's really interesting about this landscape is it's really spread out and vast. Um, and so there's kind of micro ecosystems within what we call colloquially the Canyonlands. And even as Tim describes that goes into Idaho and Nevada. So that's, that's my connection thus far. <laughs> so, so Tim, with, with rivers being the lifeblood of, of any desert, uh, how do, how do the, the, these rivers and the canyons, what role do they play in terms of wildlife and the importance of wildlife and connecting ecosystems throughout the Owyhees? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and as I mentioned before, with over home to 200 different species of wildlife, um, this landscape is, as Carly explained, very large. Um, waterways are a critical part. Water and desert is, is a big part of the ecosystem in the desert. Um, but, you know, some other things that I kind of want to highlight around that outside of even the water is that there's only 300 roughly paved road miles in a 7 million acre watershed. Um, because of these limited paved roads and remoteness, it, it really helps maintain the ecosystem health for the wildlife. I mean, disconnected landscapes, as we all know, there's a lot of studies coming out, um, can really disrupt interactions for the breeding opportunities between, between these wildlife, the predator-prey dynamics, the food and water availability, and the migration uh, 
connection to the landscape as well. I mean, you start cutting them out, you start seeing ecosystem collapses and water is one way, but I mean, as Carly talked about, this is much bigger than just Canyon lands. There's a lot of uplands, but um, which really makes a really diverse landscape for all of this, uh, for all the wildlife that call this place home. Um, and just some of the big, big uh, ungulates that we think of that are in this landscape is mule deer, elk, California, bighorn, pronghorn antelope. And uh, it's also one of the largest uh, sage-grass focus areas in the nation as well. Fun little fact, too, is that in the Nevada parts, there's been a wahi or a moose seen in that part of the Oahe as well. And a few have wandered up into Oregon and Idaho. I've seen a few photos. I've never witnessed one myself, but just it's interesting that there's so much diversity in this landscape. And Tim, isn't it true that um, Pacific salmon used to come up into the Nevada all the way via Owyhee, which, you know, most people don't think of Nevada as hosting salmonoid species or, um, you know, anadromous salmon. And that's just like fascinating to me that, you know, it connected the Owyhee to Snake River to Columbia. And nobody really knows that, I don't think, which is really cool. Yep. It was one of two rivers that allowed salmon and steelhead to get into Nevada. Now, Tim, you grew up in this region, is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. I grew up uh, my entire life in Malheur County, so where most of the Oahe is in Oregon. Um, I grew up right near where the mouth of the Oahe dumped into the Snake River, so the very very northerly part of the watershed. Um, The first time I was in this landscape, uh, I don't remember, but I know I was two months old, um, just from family campouts that we had on a routine out there. Um, I grew up with the Oahe front views right out my bedroom window. Um, we went into the Oahe for entertainment and recreational purposes. Um, yeah. And then, you know, just because of the close connection and, and being in the land a lot and seeing it from my bedroom window, like in high school, I started researching the history of this landscape, the human history. And that's kind of what's led me down this path where I am today. And from there, you know, I went into fighting fire in this landscape for a couple of years with the BLM. And then after that, I went to work for the state of Oregon. But while I was in that current employment, really got it into researching the human history even further. But then I started looking at the natural history and the land and the policy and, and how that interacts with this landscape. And um, yeah, started engaging and understanding what what the future of this landscape meant with these with the research that I'm doing so and uh I've also named my youngest son after this landscape as well <laughs> what's his name uh Jordan Owahi that's awesome and Tim so that research that you were doing that led you to establish friends of the Owahi is that right yeah that is correct um it's kind of you know it's an interesting story that um I'd love to have with everybody that listens to this one-on-one, but um, it it did help me lead to that. It connected me with others that were focused on this landscape Um, and why, you know, as I started getting involved more and why I created Friends of the Oahe, um, I found that many of the locals have never been in the land besides up to the Oahe Reservoir or which is in the very northerly part of this watershed or down Highway 95 to get into Nevada. And I wanted to connect people to this land. It's really hard to understand the conversations or topic about lands protections if you don't know the land or the policies relating to land management. So I started organizing outings in the land to share my knowledge, um, or I would even invite others with specific knowledge sets to come out and share with others as well in this landscape. And then as I started getting more involved with that and understanding the land management agencies and and shortfalls there too, um, 
I, I realized that us as public landowners can help out in a stewardship effort, you know, and start just doing trash cleanups and helping with sign placement and doing minimal data collection, getting people connected to the land and feel ownership of this land. And then again, growing up here locally, I've seen the uh, right on the edge of the Oahe is the Treasure Valley, the Boise metro area, which in the last 30 years, within two hours of the Oahe Reservoir, the population has grown 120%. And the recreation infrastructure hasn't been updated in most of the Oahe region in that 30 years. So we started looking at how can we responsibly recreate in this landscape, because I'm a firm believer that recreation helps build conservation advocates back to getting people to land. So from the really then three topics created the mission for Friends of the Oahe. And the mission is to build community around conservation advocacy, stewardship, and responsible recreation in the Oahe region. I'm a firm believer that all three of these topics connect each other and create a seamless cycle of efforts in protecting this landscape. Cool. Well, we'll get back to the, or we'll get around to how that led to the monument campaign later, but let's um, sort of talk more about this region first. Um, Carly, will you tell us why this area is important or why this area is important to local tribes and which tribes sort of historically lived in the region and are advocating for it today? Yeah, so as Tim mentioned earlier, this landscape is home to Shoshone, Northern Northern Paiute, and Bannock peoples. Um, And just as he was describing kind of how the ecology is a confluence of different areas, including the Snake River Plain. It also connects the Columbia River Plateau. And then you have or the high desert region as well. So just imagine that confluence, like we're right in the middle of all these different um, uh, ecology regions, which led to different cultural um, overlap as well. So those nations, of course, were also using this landscape with other um, nations up the Columbia River, Snake River tribes, and really it was like one of those important meeting places for um, people to come and have everything you need to survive, but of course thrive in this landscape. And people have been doing that since time immemorial. Um, but as you know, we know, archaeologically speaking, um, Oregon just discovered that the southeastern Oregon might be the longest um archaeologically proven um, human occupation in North America. So when I say that, it's really powerful, right? So this this relationship of people to this place has been, you know, longer, I think, than we can even fathom. And um, there is just immense rich cultural um, history and legacy on the landscape, um, including, you know, even some people know this, that um, Sacagawea's son is actually buried in the Owyhee. Um, there's, you know, a, 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 a gravestone for him, right, Tim? There's like a, yeah, a marked yes. area that um, sounds like been pretty protected. So I hope that continues. But, um, you know, just naming a famous Native American person like Sacagawea just just sharing her knowledge that that came from that place and that, you know, influenced people like Lewis and Clark, but of course um, that relationship is longstanding. So given the immensity of that, you know, human history there, of course, um, nations today revere this place as, you know, extremely important and um, people are absolutely still in connection with this place and their ancestral heritage and, 
using the landscape for traditional foods, hunting, gathering, and are really concerned with keeping those traditions um, continuing for for time immemorial and for their future generations. So um, that's kind of a kind of a quick overview of you know time immemorial <laughs> occupation of this place. But um, you know, I've spent a lot of time with tribal nations down there and. Um, some of them now live in reservations around the Owyhee, including the Duck Valley Reservation in um, northern uh, Nevada and Idaho border. And then you have um, the Fort McDermott tribe, which is in southeastern Oregon and Nevada border as well. So those people are still just, you know, right up in the canyonlands and, um, you know, continuing traditions today. Tim, what are some of those other threats? I mean, I, I I did a little one day float on the Rogue earlier this summer, and you know the the Rogue is virtually an e ticket now compared to some areas like this. And when you do end up with uh, that much more attention on outdoor recreation and folks looking for more of those remote experiences, what kind of pressures d- does that create on a landscape and a need to balance? people's desire to get outside with the need to protect a landscape that has been so hard and so remote. Yeah. I mean, you're spot on, 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 you know, how do we balance? Um, that's, that's a topic I talk about a lot. Um, and as I mentioned just a little bit ago that, you know, the population boom on the doorstep and really with no infrastructure management plan, how to, how people visit the land. We want people to come and see it. We want to be, you know, it's all of our public land. Um, but you know, they're, if it's kind of a free for all and, and everybody's going wherever they want, you know, we start seeing degradation of land in certain areas that are popular. So, you know, we got to have a good, good plan going forward. Um, you know, with that, I mean, we have uh, only a handful of free camping sites in, in Malheur County, a couple paid sites, uh, but Oregon state parks maintains at Lake Oahe. And, you know, again, we're almost a million people sitting on the doorstep of the Oahe. So, um, you know, it's, it's, how do we, how do we find the balance in landscape? And, and a saying that I use, it's, you know, we need to be proactive in this before reaction becomes the, the measure forward. Um, and then outside of even the, the population boom and people coming and seeing it, which again, I'm going to reiterate that we want people to come see it. Like that's, it's all of our land. We're also, you know, feeling the effects of climate change in this landscape as well. And, and invasive, we- invasive weeds such as cheatgrass and Medusa head rye are slowly creeping up into higher and higher populations. I mean, the, the mouth of the Oahe is about 2,000 feet in elevation and the the headwaters of the Oahe is about 10,000 feet. And, you know, under 4,000 feet, we're really seeing a huge impact from climate change and, and fire cycle changes in this landscape. Um, and then we also have some other mining proposals right on the edge of the Oahe watershed. Um, and then one that's looking to reopen in the Idaho part of the Oahe and all that water flows into Oregon. Um, and that that's a mine reopening that closed down in the 90s. And outside of that, out of the mining, we have a transmission corridor that's looking to come in and a pumped storage hydropower project that's looking at this landscape. So things are slowly creeping in on the industrial perspectives and for energy and minerals. So... So let's talk about efforts to protect the region. Um, I mentioned the Monument Campaign earlier. That's just launched recently. Carly, can you tell us about the different efforts that are underway right now to bring higher protection to the Oahis? Yeah, absolutely. So there have been, you know, there's been a push to protect this landscape for decades. Um, 
But more recently, as Tim just noted, all these threats, it's become more more pressing to do so um, because as it stands right now, millions of acres can just be used in, in various extractive ways. Um, and so we've really seen that, you know, southeast corner of this, this state can be a climate refuge for all these important um, species. And so with all these pressures coming, um, there's been... Uh, kind of a race to get um, protections on the landscape that's so huge. Um, and for a long time, um, we've been supporting the legislative effort by Senators Wyden and Merkley with Oregon Senators, um, which is a proposal to protect about 1.1 million acres of the Oregon Owyhee side as wilderness. Um, and that was also a push because the Idaho side of the Owyhee has some wilderness um, protections. And so it made sense to try to kind of connect these wilderness corridors in, in a legislative proposal. Um, and that's been going on for now, what, five years, Tim, six years? 2019 is when the collaborative conversation has started for that. For that's that. right. Okay. So the, yeah, the conversations with different stakeholders have really um, started since 2019, including you know, ranchers, conservationists, tribes. Um, and so they've been really trying to get everyone on board with this, this legislation. But of course, Congress is hard. Congress is hard to get things passed in, no matter how good a proposal is, no matter how great the bill is, and no matter how many, you know, diverse stakeholders are at the table saying we want this. And so that's what we've been seeing for the last five years. And the legislation actually was just reintroduced um, and it's not going to get a markup. So, you know, we're, we're kind of in this merry-go-round of not, you know, seeing the protections come as fast as they're needed. And so this parallel path of um, supporting legislation and the National Monument Campaign really rose out of that urgency and seeing the political viability of a national monument on this landscape because the Biden administration has been very supportive of national monuments, of protecting through the 30 by 30 campaign. And, you know, this landscape would actually offer the administration the largest um, conservation opportunity in the American West. Um, you know, we talk about the 1.1 million acres in the legislation, but there's actually 2.5 plus million acres of wilderness quality lands, meaning like lands that could be considered protected under wilderness status. And, and a lot of those same values could be protected under the National Monument um, including, you know, a myriad of ecological values and cultural resource values. So um, this campaign is really kind of the push to get either the legislation or the National Monument um, as the, the protective tool. And I think where, you know, Onda stands is we don't really care, you know, what the legal mechanism is. At the end of the day, we need protections now. Like that is the ultimate concern is getting protections on this landscape, getting the resources that Tim's talking about that we need. Like we need more dollars even to just, you know, allocate resources to, to helping um, recreation, you know, uh, ecology and restoration. So that is the the ultimate concern and, and we're willing to do whatever it takes to kind of get um, that layer of protection that the landscape needs. Tim, what are the conversations like that you're having with folks about the need for protections in this area? I, I'd imagine in particular conversations with, with ranchers, anytime you're talking about Eastern Oregon and Nevada are 
either fruitful or particularly fraught or both? Yeah, it's every conversation is different when, when I talk about it and depending on who I'm talking to and their background and everything else. Um, really it comes down to like the big picture that I have found over the years in working in this landscape and talking about the future of this landscape is we all really want to see the same thing. We want to see a healthy ecological landscape for our future generations. That's really both sides of the table. That's what we want to see. Now the path getting there, you know, it's a, it's a little more tricky um, in the conversations, but you know, it's a lot of, you know, where I felt that I have came in the best in this work forward is really diving into the weeds and understanding these policies and, and what does X, Y, or Z mean in this landscape if it is protected and helping explain that. I'm a firm believer that, you know, giving that information to an individual and letting them digest it. Um, But it's hard for somebody to really take a deep dive. So a lot of times I do end up sitting down at a coffee table or in a coffee shop and talking to somebody one-on-one about what their concerns are, how that's addressed in this, you know, it's really finding a balance in this landscape. And that's a topic I bring up a lot. I mean, this landscape's huge. It's the watershed, 7 million acres we're talking about in the legislation protecting 1.1. So there's still enough landscape to protect the special areas, but also still have multiple use landscape outside of that for the other needs in this landscape as well. So it's, it's, it's an, every conversation is different. It's really hard to answer that directly. So what are the concerns you hear? I mean, the, the main concerns I hear are access and how will it affect the ranching in this landscape? Um, you know, and the way the legislation has been put together, and I'm sure the way the National Monument's going to be put together is, you know, the roads are still going to be out there. I mean, it, it, the access I really don't see changing in a lot of ways. The way the legislation's drawn up, it's broke down to 27 different units. So the roads are still the boundaries and explaining that to people and getting them to understand that is is a critical part because that's probably the number one question and relating to ranching, what does that mean? And, you know, relating to legislation, you know, I'm like, well, it's in the Wilderness Act and here's all these other monuments that have ha- uh, been in place and ranching is still in that Here, right. Here's all the language in these protecting, confirming yeah. existing grazing permits are, are included. Yeah. Yeah. But then also hearing where their concerns are and, you know, as being a local kind of, as I've been referred to by one or two as a liaison in some aspects is, you know, to be able to take that forward and help find the balance. I'm always one about like finding the balance. So finding the middle ground. Right. And a monument can do that nicely because it can grandfather in those things like grazing and just sort of freeze the activities that are currently going on in time and not allow destructive ones to come in. So um, I want to ask you guys what protection for this landscape looks like to you. Um, Tim, let's keep going with you. What would your, what's your dream for this landscape 50 years in the future? What would you like to see happening in this region? Well, as, as I kind of mentioned already that, you know, just seeing a healthy ecological landscape for future generations to enjoy just as I have and you know, past generations that have been here since forever to enjoy the same way for their future generations. Um, that, you know, that in 50 years and now that 50 years from now that this landscape's protected and we're really focused on making this landscape uh, even healthier ecologically as well. So instead of talking about the policy of how, but we're doing at that point. So Carly, same question to you. What, um, what do you think is 
protection looks like and how would that play out in the next couple of decades? Yeah, I think, you know, either through the wilderness or the National Monument protections is that longevity of the intact ecological resources, but also protection of the cultural resources. Um, that is, of course, a huge concern as recreation continues and, you know, worrying about things like defacing um, cultural sites Um but even to go a step further, and again, not speaking on behalf of um, tribal nations in the area, but the concerns I've heard too is just that relationship to the landscape being altered and and uh, segregated through you know like extractive um, processes, or you know a hunting ground being desecrated through a mine or something, you know, like some big force that just it it's irreversible. You can't come back from something like that, and. What we know with Oregon's high desert is it takes decades, hundreds of years, millennia to restore. It's a slow moving ecosystem. Um, a lot of people call it sagebrush time. It's just like a different, it's just a different time zone out there that we as in our short lives, I can't really comprehend how long it takes when we, when we destroy um, the habitat in that way. And so that prevent, that preventative um, step is hopeful to me because what I don't want to see is future generations having to clean up, you know, our mess down the road hundreds of years from now that that could have just been prevented at this very moment. As someone who was welcomed into this landscape as a Western Oregoner, uh, Western Oregonian, I just would love to see the landscape to be able to hold that space. Um, and in a continually, you know, crowded world that we're sharing and a and continually warmer world, um, that's going to become harder and harder. And so really keeping the Owyhee as, you know, a vast um, Western stronghold really benefits all Americans. And, and I think that, um, you know, a national monument especially can really offer that kind of welcoming tool. I know that sometimes wilderness can kind of seem scary and there's been statistics around, you know, like different cultural backgrounds, not understanding what that means, if they can access it and either are still going to protect the landscape in the same way and still offer that access. And it's really just the means of how do we make sure that it's available for people to do so. So that's my hope. Um, and compounding all the things that Tim mentioned and um, just helping us be in balance with this place forever is really the ultimate goal. Tim, I want, I want to give you the last word, looking both back and forward. How did all of these efforts to protect this landscape start? What, what was the impetus? And then, for folks who are listening to this right now, what is the best way for them to get involved if they want to help this effort going forward? Yeah, thanks. The The history of... of the efforts to protect this landscapes, I think, a critical piece to understanding the, the current conversation. The first media piece that I found mentioning protecting the Oahe was clear back in 1978, and there's probably stuff older than that. Um, but since since the 70s, really, when certain different laws passed um, at the legislative level, um, it really started focusing on the future of BLM lands and Forest Service lands, et cetera. But by the early 1980s, there was 1.2 million acres of wilderness study areas placed in this landscape. Today, that is 10% of the nation's wilderness study areas. Um, 
In the late 80s, 187 miles of of the Oahe River in Oregon was designated as a wild and scenic river. And by the 1990s, they were still looking at this landscape and they added another 100,000 acres of areas of critical environmental concern or research natural areas. And then by the early 2000s, there was more work done on this landscape and they found that another 1.2 million acres actually meet the criteria for lands of wilderness characteristics. And currently, presently, uh, we're in a final uh, environmental impact statement, EIS, um, which would actually turn that 1.2 into 400,000 acres of lands and wilderness characteristics managed for the wilderness value. Um, During all this time, too, um, the Idaho side of the Wahi, as Carly mentioned, there was already in 2009, there was a bill passed to protect over 400,000 acres of wilderness in the Idaho part of the Wahi. That was through a very similar process that we've been doing here. Um, It's collaboration between the ranchers and conservation groups that came up with that. And in that as well, another 225 miles of wild and scenic river was created in the Idaho part of the Oahe. So the history of all this, like there's a lot of, I don't mean in a bad way, but a lot of patchwork of different layers because it's very recognized that this landscape does deserve protection. And the big picture where we're getting to with either legislation or national monument is this patchwork is hard to manage for our land management agencies, but also for individuals that recreate in this land or the ranchers that use this land. And we want to get to one form of, of layer on this land from all these other patchworks. So we, we know how to manage it. It's clear as day as we go forward and, and creating a, a healthy ecological landscape. And then next steps, if folks want to get involved, who should they call you? I mean, you probably a good idea. We called you. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, uh, get a hold of myself here at Friends of the Oahe. Um, we've got webpage friendsoftheoahe.org. And then I'll let Carly jump in on how to get a hold of her. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So with the National Monument, there is a broad coalition supporting this effort. So it's not just Tim and I boots on the ground, though we definitely are here to advocate for the landscape. But um, we've started, uh, the coalition has started a protecttheowaihi.org um, website where you can go and add your name and urge um, the president and the senators Wyden and Merkley to permanently protect this place. So really calling on the, our decision makers to work together to get the job done. Um, and if we only have until 2024 with the, the known Biden administration date, um, we're really looking at that as the push for this this one tool, this one mechanism through the National Monument. So I would enjoy every listener to you know check out protecttheowaihi.org, um, add your name and support, and we'll be here at the end of the day to keep uh, <laughs> putting a voice on for the landscape. And yeah, just appreciate everyone. Uh, learning and listening in. Awesome. Well, we'll drop links to those websites that you mentioned into the show notes. Um, Tim Davis with Friends of the Owyhee, Carly Foster with Oregon Natural Desert Association. Thank you guys both so much for being with us today. Thank you. Thank you so much. Some great news just came in from the Interior Department, which announced the creation of two new wildlife refuges. One is in Wyoming and the other is in Tennessee. The Wyoming Toad Conservation Area is located in the Laramie Plains of the Wyoming Basin and will help protect habitat for the Wyoming Toad, which is one of the most endangered amphibians in North America. The area will also support conservation efforts for other species, including the white-tailed prairie dog, 
pronghorn, and migratory birds. The Fish and Wildlife Service purchased around 1,000 acres using funds from the Land and Water Conservation Fund to establish the refuge. And that is it for this episode. Thanks for listening. Feel free to get in touch if you have episode ideas for us or other feedback. Listening to Kate's good news there, I realize we really need to do an episode on protecting non-charismatic animals. Toads, humpback chubs, you know, the, the stuff that are not fat bears. Not that there's anything wrong with fat bears. I love fat bear week. Anyway, you can reach us, podcast at westernpriorities.org. And go check out our conservation toolbox. As Kate said, it's a high-level look at the tools that can protect America's lands and waters, not just national parks or wilderness, but the whole alphabet soup of designations that you'll find out there. I, I work on this stuff every day. I still learned a lot about federal land protection tools and how they interact with each other while the team was putting this report together. From ACECs, WSAs, RMPs, there are a ton of designations out there. We hope it will be helpful to have all these things in one place for you to be able to reference or to share with your friends, whether you're looking into protecting an area or, or just trying to make sense of public lands news. You will find that link in the show notes, of course, or right on the front page of westernpriorities.org. Thanks again to Carly and Tim for joining us, and thank you for listening to The Landscape. The Landscape.